Welcome to Sharp Talk, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all the podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Robert Peston. Robert Peston is ITV's political editor and host of the Sunday morning politics show, Peston on Sunday. Robert, you have a new book out, WTF, What the Expletive, uh, Whiskey, <laughs> Tango, Foxtrot, whatever you want to call it. Um, I know it's not ostensibly about Brexit, but it is a theme recurring, but we won't start by talking about Brexit. But mm. you do paint a pretty grim picture of the United Kingdom uh, as your kind of opening gambit. It's a declining uh, social mobility, increasing inequality, wage stagnation. Um, is it all of a sudden this has come to your attention or has that been sort of brewing in your head for quite some time before you put pen to paper, as it were? So for years now, I have obviously been uh, thinking about these issues of fairness or rather the way that the global economy uh, has operated now for two or three decades um, is increasingly perceived to be unfair by millions of people in the rich West who happen to be on middle to low incomes. Um, because the reality is that those people have done badly out of globalization. Um, and particularly since the great crisis of 2007 and 8, and then the Eurozone crisis, um, you know, things have got considerably worse for those on middle to low incomes. And so this has been a preoccupation of mine uh, for some time. I, actually, my previous book, How Do We Fix This Mess, was really all about the, the, the economic aspects uh, of all of that. Uh, the reason I wrote WTF was actually directly related to Brexit. Um, I hate getting things wrong. I didn't expect uh, the British people to vote for Brexit. So in that sense, I got quite a big thing wrong. And so you were, you were one of the motives <laughs> for writing the book was to try and understand why you know, a, major a majority of people, not a huge majority, but a, a, you know, a majority nonetheless of British voters chose to go for Brexit. Um, uh, 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 and why, uh, as I say, my own analysis of how it would go uh, turned out to be flawed. Without being oversimplistic, there are basically two parts of the book. One of the analysis, a very in-depth analysis of where we are, where we are at the moment, and then some kind of policy prescriptions in the second half. But on the, on the analysis, did you, even on that part, did, were you quite surprised by how, how stark the, 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 the economic indicators, social indicators were about inequality, broadly speaking, in the UK? Or did you already know sort of intuitively? So the, the book was really about linking the data to behaviour. I was aware of a lot of the data because it's, you know, I'm obsessed with numbers and I'm obsessed with trying to you know, keep abreast a, a of social and economic trends. But it was trying to link what had been happening to the prosperity of millions of people um, to the way that they behaved. The other reason for writing the book, I mean, actually, as it happens, having seen British people vote for Brexit, I did expect the Americans to vote for Trump, but I regarded the vote for Trump uh, as a pretty irrational vote by Americans. And again, I wanted to understand why it was a similar group of people, uh, particularly the white working class in America, not those on the lowest incomes, but just above the lowest incomes, why they had been seduced by Trump, having previously, most of them, been Democrat supporters. Um, and I had to go back, therefore, to this um, problem, in a sense, for the ruling elite, which is that the establishment, the ruling elite, were 
perceived uh, by millions of people on middle to lower incomes as simply not serving their interests, uh, you know, essentially running things primarily for the interests of those uh, at the top, uh, those with highest education, those most mobile in terms of where they can work, those with the highest incomes. And, um, you know, the, the, the whole point of our liberal democracy, of our, cap of our, uh, our particular version of capitalism, is, you know, that it is supposed to be in the best interests of most people. And actually, it hasn't been for a number of years. Uh, and I do regard the votes for Trump and the votes for Brexit as a protest by those who feel left behind. Um, and so the book is about explaining that they're right to feel left behind. It, it, you know, that's a true state of affairs. And then, uh, as, as you mentioned, Paul, I then try and get on to some prescriptions for how to fix things. Okay, before we come on to the prescriptions briefly, I mean, um, you're a progressive, that's not a scoop. I think it's widely known. <laughs> um, and, um, but to what extent of, of, is it an issue of uh, the, the, the fault of successive governments, whether Labour or Conservative? Has this problem been brewing for quite some time? Or are you trying to suggest maybe that only when the Conservatives and the coalition government took office in 2010 that things got really bad? Look, there's no question that the worst of the squeeze in incomes took place under the coalition and Tory governments. But that doesn't mean to say that the coalition and Tory governments are, you know, exclusively to blame. You, you know, a big contributor to that squeeze in incomes was the bubble uh, in the city, the bubble in finance that burst. Now, let's be clear, that bubble happened on Labour's watch mm. uh, and it happened to an extent because, you know, Labour's approach to regulating the city was grossly negligent. Um, at, at the same time, there's a very strong case for saying that Labour did not address the North-South divide as effectively as it should have done. It didn't uh, do enough to correct the desperate decline in manufacturing. It didn't think about, during the period of economic growth and job creation, that many of the jobs that were being created were not very satisfying, pretty low-quality jobs. So, you know, I do think that Labour can be held responsible for a failure of industrial policy um, coupled with a failure to regulate the city properly. So, you know, I, I don't think that it would be remotely be fair to say that this is, you know, you know a, 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 a Tory problem. This is a problem of all mainstream governments of the last, you know, 20 plus years. OK, so, so, on, so on Brexit... You're, again, not a scoop, a remainer. Um, you, uh, you seem to be resigned to, you're one of those remainers who are resigned to the vote. You're not trying to maybe suggest that any attempt should be made to, to stop it, halt it, or delay it. But at the same time, it comes throughout the book again and again and again that you are very worried about the, 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 any, you know, any, any scenario of Brexit. So, so look, my central thesis is that what needs to be fixed in the UK would need to be fixed whether we were remaining in the EU or whether we leave the EU. These issues of inequality, of a massive income gap between old and young, a wealth gap between old and young, an income gap between the North and the South, 
a massive wealth gap between the north and the south. A massive product, you know, the only sustainable basis for generating increasing incomes is productivity. Massive productivity growth between north and south and a period of, you know, a, a, a genuinely desperately worrying period of um, stagnation in productivity, which underlies this stagnation of earnings. Now, these are huge fundamental problems for the UK that would be with us in or out of uh, the EU. And my greatest worry about Brexit is the opportunity cost of Brexit, because what's going on at the moment is all the resources, intellectual, emotional, of government are going in to deliver Brexit, which means that what I regard as the more serious structural problems for the UK are not being addressed. And, you know, what particularly worries me is um, that some of those structural problems will actually get worse as a result of Brexit. What I mean by that is, you know, I took the view during the referendum, and I've taken the view since, that leaving the EU, almost whatever kind of trade deal or lack of trade deal we do with the EU will make the UK a bit poorer, not desperately, dramatically poorer, but a bit poorer. And the problem is being a bit poorer at a time when growth is anyway low is quite serious. Now, um, you know, the consequence of that is that those on lowest incomes, many of whom voted for Brexit, uh, will feel that this vote is not turning out the way that they expected, that their problems are not being addressed, and they may get angrier than they are at the moment. And when millions of people get angry, you know, you, you, you fear, particularly at a time when we're seeing the rise of populism and extremism all over the West, that, you know, they could, uh, you know, they could abandon it, even, you know, the, 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 I mean, not, not, not just go for, you know, politicians that some of us would regard as rather dangerous, but even lose faith in our democratic structures. And, right. and you know, that's, that I think is a, 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 you know, a genuine concern. Now, to be absolutely clear, that doesn't mean that I am somebody who says we've got to reverse Brexit at all costs. My view is uh, that we have to address these problems at all costs. I think there is a genuine danger uh, in trying to reverse Brexit ahead of the British people wanting to reverse Brexit. I mean, I think it is plausible that at some point, you know, might take months, might take years, the British people decide that Brexit hasn't cracked, you know, isn't turning out to be all they thought it would be and do change their minds. But given that the vote for Brexit was a vote against the political establishment, my own view is that if the political establishment tries to sort of, in a sense, bully the British people to change their minds, British people are likely to do precisely the opposite. Um, and so I think I would regard that as a completely mad and fatuous exercise. And then there's just a fundamental point, which is, you know, although I am sad that given our constitution, we have had, um, it's not just Cameron, but frankly it's been mainly Cameron, who's basically gone for referenda when the problem seemed too difficult to solve through our traditional parliamentary procedures. And I think that was a mistake, and I think it goes against the great British tradition. Nonetheless, you know, these are enormous exercises in direct 
democracy. Mm. And I think that if you ignore these results, um, again, you do a, you, 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 you know, it, it's a blow to confidence in the system of a very serious sort. So, no, I, I, you know, I, I, I take the view that any rational person would assume that Brexit is happening and that we've just got to make the best of it. And I also say in the book, which has actually attracted a bit of attention, that given that the establishment was ignoring the interests, particularly of those on lower incomes, you know, it was rational for these people to shout and scream via the Brexit vote because, you know, this was their best way of giving the establishment a kicking. I think the establishment is, is listening a bit, but not listening enough to what it means. But, you know, this was, as I say, the last moment for what I regard as, a, as, as, as an important democratic protest against the status quo. OK, then, to, to finish off, Robert, as I said earlier, your book has analysis, but then also has, towards the end, quite a few, quite detailed, some, some say quite controversial policy prescriptions. For the benefit yeah. of the people listening to this podcast who have not yet to read WTF, can you highlight two or three of the more striking prescriptions you put in the book? Well, what, what are the, so, so I do think that there has to be much more investment in public services, schools and hospitals. I think we, you know, uh, 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 and we've also got to take this whole productivity issue very seriously. So, I mean, a number, uh, so one of the things I say is that it's, it's patently clear that our current system of taxing, either direct taxes or indirect taxes, income taxes or, sorry, income taxes or indirect taxes on spending, um, are either a bit regressive or simply not raising, you know, significant sums of money. Um, and so my own view is there has to be a shift more towards wealth taxes. Now, um, you know, I say that for a number of reasons. One is because actually wealth taxes, particularly on property and land, are harder to avoid. Uh, uh, secondly, because the inequalities are greatest when it comes to wealth. There's been a, you know, there are grotesque income inequalities um, in most of the rich West, including the UK, but the wealth uh, inequalities are literally out of this world. And a lot of those wealth inequalities have nothing to do with anybody's prowess at investing. They're just to do with the fact that if you happen to be born in the 60s or 70s and you got on the property ladder early enough, you've got a lot of equity uh, in your house. It is a windfall. Um, and so I do take the view that it's perfectly reasonable for older people, are largely older people, with a bit of wealth to pay a bit of tax on that accumulated wealth. What I say is so that people who don't have much income, who just happen to live in an expensive house, you know, don't suffer terrible hardship, that the wealth tax should be in the form of an IOU. Um, uh, and uh, the IOU should, in a sense, be delivered to the government in cash, either when the property is sold or when the individual dies and it's paid, therefore, by their heirs, as, as sort of rolled up in their inheritance taxes. Either way, it's a guarantee of income against which the government will be able to borrow at, at, at almost zero cost. And it would yield tens of billions of pounds for investment in schools and hospitals, which is absolutely vital. But the other thing I'm absolutely passionate about, and this goes to the heart of the productivity issue, is that the, you know, again, one of the things that I find, I, I almost despair about is, We've got a government which says it's going to deliver Brexit, but it has delivered no vision for what a post-Brexit Britain would look like. And the other thing that we ought to be doing, and this would genuinely help with productivity, is we ought to make 
Brexit a national mission for economic recovery. And there's an awful lot you could what do. You, what do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is you would encourage uh, industry, researchers, universities to come together, look at individual sectors, share best practice, share, you know, particularly those who are more productive, share their expertise in terms of why they produce more bang for their buck, more bang for their people. And then also just come up with ideas that, that collectively can be uh, fleshed out and delivered for what a, you know, what are the industries, what are our strengths, you know, how are we going to become more prosperous as a, as a, as, as, as a nation once detached from this, this great single market? It's not impossible. Um, in the, you know, all over the place, you see little in individuals working in silos coming up with plans. But what you want is a government that's able to corral people together. Um, and, literally, and, and, you know, and as I say, it's, it's a... It, it's, it's, if you look, I mean, this is slightly an idea I've, I've nicked from the, uh, I think, the rather imaginative um, uh, economist, Mariana Matsukatu. And, and, you know, she look, she's looked at, you know, for example, um, the enormous industrial be benefits that sending people to the moon produced, right? Now, you know, th there's an analogy here for right. a country like the UK. You know, this is an enormous trade and commercial challenge right okay and what you need to do is you have to see it as the equivalent of sending pe you know sending people to the moon right. and you have to basically get an enormous collaborative effort of the best you know brains in britain uh, get them to come together and come up with a few ideas. Well, that sounds very apposite since a lot of people think the government's living on another planet anyways. <laughs> so uh, on that note, uh, Robert Peston, thank you very much for your time. <laughs>